0: Hello and welcome to the latest Red Star Bulletin, bringing you the latest from the Ukraine war, or more accurately, the Russia-NATO war, happening to take place on the territory of the unfortunate nation of Ukraine. Today we have some rather dramatic news uh, stemming from the Russian withdrawal, or announced withdrawal, from Kherson City yesterday. There's a series of events that have taken place in the last 24 hours which have led credence to various theories that some sort of deal is in the offing. Now, I'm going to talk about what was said yesterday by General Souravikin and what is being reported today by uh, the journalist Pepe Escobar and others about some sort of arrangement being reached that has been frashed out via Jake Sullivan, the US National Security Advisor and former campaign manager for Hillary Clinton. The man's had a roaring success at failing upwards and Nikolai Patrashev, the uh, chair of the Security Council of the Russian Federation. Of course, any deal would have to be approved by the full Russian government. So what has actually been going on? Well, yesterday was announced by General Suravikin in a televised uh, meeting that he had with the Minister of Defense of the Russian Federation, uh, General Sergei Shoigu, that the uh, left bank of the... uh, of the Kherson defense, so Kherson city itself and the land on the west bank of the Dnieper River. If you call up a map of Ukraine, and look at the uh, where Kherson city is situated, it's situated just over uh, the river uh, from where the Russians have the bulk of their forces. So it's an area where, of course, there was a lot of talk of the Russians going through there, going to Nikolaev, then down to Odessa. Um, There was a lot of talk of a Ukrainian offensive that never really began, though there wasn't more intensified fighting at the beginning of yesterday, that yesterday being Wednesday the 9th of November. So if you look at the map, you can see Kherson City there, or Kherson City, if you prefer the Russian pronunciation. And there were several defensive lines in front of Kherson City, uh, and it was apparently it was apparently the case that the Kessel City was being fortified Uh, this in the end proved that it was either not going to be defended or that it was part of a planned withdrawal because Surovikin announced that the front lines couldn't be supplied with ammunition because all the bridges over the Dnieper River had been blown by the Ukrainians and that actually delivering ammunition to the front line was proving increasingly difficult now This was the official story put out. It may be correct. Um, Certainly, there's been repeated um, accounts coming from Russian military correspondents that the bridges over that part of the river uh, towards the front line around Kherson have all been destroyed, that the Ukrainians do have uh, a lot of artillery in the area. And of course, they are supported in their targeting and communications uh, via all the uh, satellite array And latest communications technology that NATO countries have available. That's all provided to the Ukrainian armed forces. And so one area that there's been consistent complaints from Russian uh, reporters and military correspondents, uh, that that one area that they claim that the Ukrainians have got supremacy in is in targeting efficiency and communications, that they make better use of uh, the uh, it's satellite and intelligence and um, IT support network that NATO's given them, and this is superior to what the Russians have. That may well be true. I'm not an expert on these things. But certainly it seems that the Russians had some difficulty getting supplies over to the front line around Kesselon and beyond. And the judgment of Suravikin, and he implied this uh, three weeks ago when he took over, Um, was that it was too difficult to defend, Though that even if it could be defended, it would be very difficult to resupply the troops. And he didn't want to uh, essentially stage a all-or-nothing battle and get a lot of Russian troops killed unnecessarily at this stage. And so he proposed pulling out and uh, building a new front line on the east bank of the Dnieper River. And this, of course, caused a lot of consternation because, of course, Kherson region... Was taken into the Russian Federation in a big ceremony, uh, following changes to, of course, the Russian Constitution. Votes going through the the Duma and the upper house in the Russian of the Russian Parliament, uh, the Russian uh, Senate, and a big um, demonstration and celebration. So uh, this was also going along with a even a flag ceremony being carried out last week, with the flag of the region being added to the. Um, ceremonial display of all the flags of the Russian regions. But all the Russian leadership seems to be behind this. People who usually are the first to raise criticisms of the military, people like uh, Ramzan Kadyrov of the Chechen region and uh, Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner group, both came out and said it's a difficult decision but they respect what the general has chosen to do. So clearly Everybody in the Russian leadership was lined up behind this decision. And as I said, Surovikin did imply that this might be on the cards several weeks ago. So before I get to any potential deal, I want to talk a little bit about what the military side of this might be. And whereas I understand something of uh, military history, having studied it, I understand the politics of the situation slightly more. So let's start off with the basics here. Let's go back to the old phrase of Klaus Witt, which everybody repeats, but it would seem that few people really understand, which is war is a continuation of policy by other means, the means, of course, being violent. So when we look at the history of the so-called special military operation inside Ukraine, we can see that it can be divided into a number of distinct phases, The first phase, as I've covered before, the first phase was back in late February and March to April of this year, where the Russian Federation Armed Forces, combined with, of course, the people's militias of the Donetsk and Lukansk regions, now part of Russia, advanced into Ukraine in rapid fashion. And this was a spectacular advance, and this included an advance to Kherson itself, and It included, of course, a drive of 40,000 troops towards Kiev, Kiev very rapid advance, the dramatic landing of Russian parachutist forces at Gostomel Air Force Base near Kiev, including a lot of spectacular fighting that went on there. And those forces held that airport for a number of weeks until ordered to withdraw. And this was um, all designed to do two things, principally. And the two things which it was designed to do were... Announced by Putin uh, in his speech that uh, where he commenced the special military operation. If you remember the speech he gave in late February, the second speech. The first speech was about recognizing the independence of Lukánsk and Donetsk. The second speech was about launching the SMO. Now, what he said in that was that the the Kiev regime could not be negotiated with uh, anymore because they'd violated all their agreements, and he made an appeal to the leadership of the Ukrainian armed forces to essentially overthrow Zelensky and the rest of them and take power themselves, and that Russia would then bargain with them. He said specifically uh, that the Ukrainian armed forces leaders were military professionals whom the Russians could strike a bargain with. Now, he must have had, when he made that statement, some intelligence uh, from uh, the uh, various Russian intelligence services, from sources inside the Ukrainian leadership, that either Zelensky or others were amenable to some kind of bargain being struck. Who knows? And so the first phase seems to have been a lightning quick raid into Ukraine, particularly the action around Kiev, which was designed to trigger the probably the resignation and the flight of Zelensky and the collapse of that uh, Maidan regime. And if you believe the stories that have come out, it almost happened. There was a panic suddenly. Nobody really expected it to actually occur, uh, the uh, Russian action, that is. And Zelensky did consider running uh, until being fortified by the Americans and others and told to stay put. Um, So that almost worked, but didn't quite Then you get the phase where the Russians were aiming for a negotiated settlement, Uh, the negotiated settlement being along the lines of what was on the cards in the Istanbul arrangements that Erdogan was overseeing, which was, of course, that Ukraine would lose the DPR and the LPR, Donetsk and Lugansk, and that these would go to be, it would be the Georgian solution essentially, that the... Uh, Donetsk and Lukansk would become these nominally independent states just like South Ossetia is whereby the Russians would be probably be the only country in the world along with like the DPRK, um, D- Democratic People's Republic of Korea, Syria and maybe a, a couple of other close Russian allies would recognize them but basically they will be Russian in all but name and the conflict would then be frozen just like the Georgian conflict has for the last 14 years. That was clearly what Uh, Putin and the other Russian leaders had in mind of course Boris Johnson the EU leaders and Biden or whoever the hell is running Biden um, pulled the plug on this and told Zelensky that they were not ready for the war to end and that's actually a direct quote from Boris Johnson Uh, he has he said that and was this was reported on in articles in the Guardian back in March and April of this year that Boris Johnson says you can't negotiate with Putin, and he does this pathetic faux Churchill act, or he says you can't negotiate with a, an alligator when your head's in its mouth, which is a line from the, the biopic of Churchill um, with Gary Oldman in it a few years ago. So it's not even an, a, a particularly original Churchill quote. So the pound shop Churchill went to Kiev and told the the cocaine addict there that you have to keep fighting, and we will support you in doing so. Thus begins when that agreement collapses the next phase in the war where the Russians withdraw from around Kiev. That might have been as part of some kind of goodwill gesture, who knows, uh, to try and secure some kind of agreement. and But it didn't seem to work. So therefore they withdrew from Kiev and said that their focus was now on Donetsk and Lugansk. And they got all of Lugansk freed. They're still battling through Donetsk. And then, of course, you get this long period uh, that stretches over the summer and into uh, September where the Russians have to rotate a lot of their troops out because a lot of their forces came to the end of their uh, military contract service and had to be taken out of the front line. And therefore, the bulk of the fighting was still being done by the Donetsk and Lugansk militias, Rosgardia, Chechens, that, those kind of people, with support from the Russian Air Force and artillery. And that carries on until, of course, you get the Ukrainian offensives first down in Herson, where they tried to make an advance back in September and received very heavy casualties, and then up in Kharkov, where the Russians had already withdrawn forces to because, of course, they were having to move, shuffle their troops around. And then, of course, you get the mobilization of Russian uh, reservists uh, around 300 to 330,000 and you get the recognition of the four regions uh, as to becoming part of the Russian Federation. And as time has gone on and Ukraine's offensives have petered out and uh, military aid to Ukraine from NATO becomes ever more sparse and they became less and less capable of actually giving the Ukrainians the significant amount of weaponry they would require, given that the Ukrainian industrial base is collapsing. or and, 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 of course, now the Ukrainian energy grid and a lot of Ukrainian infrastructure has been destroyed or severely damaged by the Russian missile and drone attacks. Then, of course, uh, the Ukrainians are getting increasingly desperate. Uh, the recession looming, or already here, really, in the Western Europe and Eastern Europe and, of course, Coming into the United States as well made the US administration increasingly desperate to have something uh, to try and find a way out of this, even though they themselves had, of course, prolonged the war far longer than it needed to be. Now, of course, we get to this, which is that there is a withdrawal from around Kherson city, Uh, the civilian population has been almost entirely evacuated, and the Ukrainians Uh, reacted initially to this withdrawal by not believing it by because they've been saying the ukrainians have been saying like podolyak and others uh, around the office of zelensky have been saying that the whole thing's a russian psyop that they're trying to lure them into a brutal city battle that we won't um we won't go for it and the french intelligence said in their briefing last night that they weren't sure if there'd been a genuine russian withdrawal either but now the latest stories float around saying that there's some kind of deal in the offing and that this is why Sullivan went to um, Kiev and spoke to Zelensky and that he'd already spoken to Patrushev. And that basically that uh, the deal is, according to reporting by Pepe Escobar, who has some sources within the Russian government and other places, so even though I find him something of a, uh, should we say, an excitable character... Uh, he has had good information in the past. So what could be the basis of this deal then? Now, according to the report from Escobar, again, unconfirmed so far, the basis of it is that the front line becomes the Dnieper River, which, again, if you take a look back on the map, and I'm not sure whether this means the entire length of the Dnieper River or whether this just refers specifically to the area around Herson. Problem being that if it's the entire Dnieper River, which runs straight through the middle of Ukraine as it was constituted pre-2014, well, it runs from the top around the border with Belarus all the way through Kiev, all the way through several major cities, including Dnipro, uh, Zaporozhye, down to uh, Kherson, and then, of course, out into the Black Sea. Now, if the front line is going to be... um, The entirety of that, then that essentially splits Kiev in two, which I can't see the Ukrainians accepting, even if the Americans give them a direct order to. So, and that would mean, of course, them losing a lot of territory where they're not currently actually engaged in battles with the Russians, though, of course, the Americans, the American military, at least, will be very aware of the large Russian buildup in Belarus and along the border uh, near Kursk. And, of course, the buildup of forces in uh, and around Crimea as well. So there's clearly a Russian buildup towards some kind of offensive. Now, if the front line, if this arrangement, and again, consult your uh, Google map on this one. It's useful to look at the map when, you're, uh, when we're talking about this. If you look at it and if the front line is going to be along the Dnieper River up to a certain point, I cannot see... Zelensky being able to sell, or any Ukrainian leader at this stage being able to sell, splitting Kiev into—I just can't picture that, or that the Americans would try and make them do that. But I can say I can see that they would trade um, that the Russians might trade Kherson itself in return for significant concessions around the the rest of their border. So maybe the Ukrainians keep Kiev, and maybe. They lose Kharkov, maybe they lose all that land that used to be, uh, at least according to Putin's speeches that he's given on this, part of Russia until it was uh, reassigned in border changes by the Bo- the Bolshevik government uh, hundred years ago. And maybe that's sold to Zelensky as well, this is the best deal you're going to get. It's either this or a long winter of war, which nobody wants and the Americans and the Europeans definitely don't want. And so the Kiev clowns might be about to find out uh, what happens to all of America's allies or more specifically America's puppets when the going gets bad in American domestic politics and they decide that enough is enough and it's time to pull the plug. Because if they lose all of that, then there's no way Zelensky can survive. He'll have to go into exile somewhere. And essentially, uh, any deal that the Russians might be able to sell, I think would have to involve the Ukrainians pulling out of Donetsk itself, the Donetsk People's Republic. And of course, if they're going to give up Kherson, well, to they'd have to get something in return for that, which may well be Kharkov, and it may well be that the Russians get given all of that area up to the, the Belarusian border in order to provide a more secure border for them, as some of their demands were about, and that whatever's left of the rump state of Ukraine gets to keep Odessa, gets to keep Nikolaev, gets to keep Kherson itself, and the new front line becomes the river. So, it's conceivable that some people in the Biden White House are looking at that and thinking, fuck it, we'll, we'll leave Ukraine in existence with a coastline and, of course, with the right to build up a military and we'll freeze this conflict for a year or two. We'll say that we will put Ukraine's NATO status on the back burner and essentially we will adopt a version of the Georgian solution. And it's a, and that would be a far worse deal for Kiev than was on the table back in March. And would the Americans be able to claim victory? Well, a recent statement by General Milley, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staffs, and remember, the American uh, Chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is a political position. It's not. It's not. He's not there for being a great military genius. He's there because he scratched the right backs for the last thirty years. So, would the Americans sell it as a victory? American propaganda can try, can tell you that white is black, that the sky is actually a livid shade of green, that climate change is real, and all the rest of it. If they give the Russians all this land, though, without even having to put uh, them having to actually do any serious fighting for places like Chernov, uh, then how do they sell that? Well, they can sell it on the grounds that. They could say, Putin aimed to conquer all of Ukraine. We have prevented that. Our aid to Ukraine enabled Ukraine to stand strong. Ukraine is still a viable state, blah, blah, blah. Um, They might not even show the areas on the map, and most Americans won't know where the areas on the map are. The neocons will sieve and plot, but maybe the people in the Biden White House are thinking, this is just too much now. We can't carry on with this support for Ukraine when we're facing a recession at home. Maybe they've decided it's in their interest to just freeze this thing, even if Ukraine loses a significant chunk of territory. Now, could the Russians sell that to their domestic population? Well, if they get everything east of the uh, Dnieper River, not including Kiev, I think the Americans can't barter that away, then maybe the justification will be, well, look, we've gained all this. We keep uh, Crimea as secure. The Donetsk and Lukánska are free. We've added all this territory to Russia. We've secured the border. Um, we're not going to go through a winter war. And maybe some of the sanctions get lifted. Could could Putin sell that when he's given up Kherson? Maybe. Maybe the Russian uh, nationalists and the uh, the communists would be enraged and would make a lot of noise about it. Could they sell it? Maybe. If there's a lot of gains, into, if they get Kharkov, for instance, if there's a Ukrainian withdrawal from east of the Dnieper River in it's almost in its entirety, then maybe. Maybe the Russian government can sell that. Um, depends how this shakes out, though. The other question is, of course, can the clown in Kiev sell this? Getting back Kherson, and if they lose a load of other territory, including Kharkov, um, can they sell that? I would think not. I would think that if Zelensky accepts this and signs this, then Zelensky goes as well. I don't. I think that that would be another demand that the Russians would regard as being met. If Zelensky goes, and there is an interim regime brought in, maybe headed by Hero of the War General Zeluzny, as interim military ruler, or maybe he'll put on a suit and take off the Nazi bracelet and declare that Ukraine is now neutral i mean it's going to be a very difficult sell for the ukrainian regime because they've the the militants the azov lot the nazis the banderists will all say with some justification from a military point of view that well we haven't lost they'll say and of course but without nato assistance without nato satellite arrays without nato arms without NATO intelligence, without NATO's backing and the financial backing of all of the European countries, specifically Germany and France and Britain, and without the assistance of uh, the Americans, they wouldn't last five minutes. But, of course, a lot of them will say, well, we haven't lost, why should we withdraw? So any regime that would accept this, I mean, as I said, Zelensky would probably have to go into exile in his Florida villa that he has and just spend the next... uh, or well, the rest of his life appearing on chat shows in America. Maybe he could do a film with Sean Penn. Um, yeah, any regime that would succeed him would then have to eliminate the Nazi problem or at least arrest a lot of the leaders and have them all offed or imprisoned somewhere because the, the, a lot of these characters would not accept it. They've already had to start taking property off the oligarchs uh, like Kolomoisky and others just to keep the factories open. So it may be that this is the the end of a phase. Who knows? This is all just talk at the moment. It may be that the forces inside Ukraine are told in no uncertain terms by their American handlers, no, this is it. This is the best deal you are going to get now, and if you do not accept it, then we pull support from you. Now they won't say that openly, but this is the this is the problem that the Americans are now in. If someone in the Ukrainian regime decides that well, fuck you, we're going to carry on making a fight of it anyway. Well, can they do that, though, is the question. Can the Ukrainians survive without, without any NATO support, or will the Americans dare withdraw it? Intra- all interesting questions. To get Ukraine- the Ukrainian regime to accept such a deal, they would have to eliminate the militant elements. They would have to either pay off or kill some of the leaders, which, of course, the Americans have done before. And then Ukraine gets divided. But then what happens with the, what is left of Ukraine? Because if this is the deal, then Ukraine loses all of the industrial base that was in the east. They lose several major cities. Of course, most of these places are Russian speaking, but they lose a hell of a lot of the economic base of Ukraine. So whatever the Americans were offering would have to be, they would have to sweeten the deal considerably. Because what will Ukraine will be left with? Yes, it would still have access to the sea, which is what which is what I think one of the big things the Americans were concerned about was if the Russians march all the way down to Odessa and all the way up to the border with Romania, it would increase, of course, problems for the American allies in the region. And I don't think that that, talk of uh, a 70-odd thousand force that was going to come in and apparently secure Odessa was anything other than a bluff from the Americans to try and get the Russians negotiating. Um, I don't think the Russians thought it was real either. But would this rump Ukraine, uh, which still has access to the sea, be a viable state? That's the question. Um, Certainly in the short term, the Americans would lean on the Europeans heavily to say, okay, war's ended. Now you've got to throw money uh, making this rump Ukraine into a success. Uh, would the Europeans would be willing to do that? Maybe. Um, it would depend upon, of course, uh, how bad the recession gets. But if the Americans say, look, war's ended and quietly, very quietly, Herr Schultz, you can... Get around more and more of these sanctions on Russian energy. Maybe you can start using what's left of Nord Stream. And as long as you commit to propping up this Ukrainian rump state that we have carved out in the negotiations with the Russians. Maybe. I mean, maybe then that the Europeans agree to prop this thing up. But it would be difficult. It would be... uh, a country without an industrial base almost. It would be a country that would essentially be reduced to, well, funnily enough, what the Kaiser and the uh, the German Nazis wanted it for in the first place, which is its soil. Um, and that would be principally what it would be. This would be an agricultural colony on the east of Europe that would be hyper-exploited for its wheat and grain. That would be all really they've got left. It would be a European and American... Um, source of um, agricultural resource extraction, and that would be it. There would be an elite that would sit in Kiev or Lvov and would be very heavily bribed to keep things under control. But would it remain stable? Probably not. I mean, bear in mind, the countries in Eastern Europe aren't exactly looking very stable, and stability is not going to increase over time as the recession bites and the capitalist classes in Eastern Europe attack their working classes ever more there's more and more pressure in terms of a lot of people seeking to flee uh, Eastern Europe over to the West there's more and more problems in the West over uh, revolts over mass numbers of immigration and that becoming more of a political issue and there's general the capitalist crisis gets worse or instability across both West and Eastern Europe is going to get worse as class conflict increases now this may be part of the American thinking that that there are some people inside the American intelligence apparatus and military apparatus who are looking at all the things that we're looking at in terms of all the protests across Europe, there's anti-NATO protests breaking out in Romania, in Bulgaria, um, the ongoing instability inside Moldova where there's uh, protests against Sandu every week in an ongoing fashion that they're looking at all of this and thinking okay well for now, it's manageable, but you throw in a recession, you throw in severe, en- even more severe energy crisis, you throw in um, the re-emergence of bitter class conflicts across Eastern Europe, and we've got a severe problem here in terms of European stability. Then, of course, you have the fact that uh, Schultz in Germany and whoever succeeds Schultz in Germany is going to have severe a severe problem in terms of their economy, which is, of course, causing them to be torn in two directions between the Americans who are still one of their biggest trading partners if not still just about the biggest and of course the need for them to build further relations with the Chinese and with all of this going on and with the American bourgeoisie needing desperately to have some stability to reorganize themselves inside the United States they are in a process of trying to reshore some production at the moment. Ironically enough, Trump's campaign from 2016 has been taken up in form uh, and content by Biden, uh, or the Democrats are now having to uh, reshore production, they're having to try to uh, bring back supply lines more into either the USA or at least into their hemisphere. Now, that's what the Haiti thing is all about, as my interview with Dan Cohen discussed and maybe the Americans are thinking this is this this war right now we can no longer afford it and both uh, literally and figuratively and uh, we need to secure um, some stability inside the United States itself before we and before we can think about the next problem we're going to create which is uh, maybe Taiwan more uh, well, definitely Taiwan. So maybe they decided that this is, that this war right now isn't viable for them, and that therefore they are prepared to cut off the Kiev clowns from weapons and money, or at least say that they are. So this leaves us in a position where we are waiting for the next phase. Does this peace deal, which is apparently... Uh, both Riyadh and Istanbul are heavily involved, so uh, Mohammed bin Salman and, of course, Erdogan, are these negotiations going to actually bear fruit? Well, let's see. I mean, there are, of course, interests on both sides of the Atlantic that don't want this war to end, fundamentally. There are, of course, the various different shady characters in the State Department and some in the intelligence services of the United States who don't want it to end, there are the same people that don't want it to end in Britain, as you will have heard if you listen to the interview I did with Kit Klarenberg earlier this week. So the question is, of course, well, is this going to stick? And it's a difficult one because the Kiev regime can be threatened by the Americans into submission uh, because without the Americans, there is no Kiev regime. And for the Russians, if they get everything that... that certainly Escobar's reporting says they're going to get, well, that kind of resolves uh, the original launching of the SMO. And, of course, if some of the sanctions are downgraded for now and the whole thing is frozen in place, well, Russians may accept it. Losing Kherson City and gaining everything east of the Dnieper River other than Kiev itself and having the war end before winter and being able to claim victory... Who knows? Uh, if they can sell that to the domestic population, certainly. I think it's certainly there would be many inside the Russian government who would be interested in taking that deal and thinking that, well, in terms of getting Odessa, in terms of getting Nikolaev, in terms of taking the rest of the Ukrainian state, that's another question. I mean, Putin has talked about this um over and over again, and he has mentioned re- repeatedly in recent weeks. Uh, The idea that Ukrainians and Russians are the same people and that the only people who can guarantee respect for Ukrainian culture are Russians, and it would seem that he was getting ready for potentially absorbing all of Ukraine. Um, But then again, on the other hand, if the Americans basically offer one of the things that he said that the Russian government was after, which was the end of the Maidan regime and the creation of a new one that would be neutral and would balance between um, the West and Russia, uh, then maybe that would be an offer he would find difficult to turn down because there would be a lot of people inside the Russian governmental circles and the Russian ruling class who would say, okay, enough, let's get back to let's get back to running capitalist russia and not go on some uh, you know uh, revanchist trip around the idea of greater russia it would have, of course offend all the russian nationalists to have set themselves up for uh, you know the conquest of nova russia but putin has shown that he's prepared to lean into such rhetoric and then lean out of it again before it's also worth bearing in mind that um, one of the people that uh, putin does take some historical inspiration from is of course uh, Peter the Great and the other sort of great reforming Tsars and that the formation of Russia uh, as it stood at the time of the the Tsarist Empire's collapse and the the claiming of all that land that's now in Ukraine or now going to be in uh, southwest Russia and the expansion of the borders of the old Russian Empire, that took place over many, many years. Uh, It didn't all happen at once, no dramatic conquest. And so from the point of view of Putin and the other people in the Kremlin, but Putin himself, particularly, and bear in mind, this is not a man who is a or regards himself as some sort of revolutionary figure. If he, as the book on Putin by Richard Sakwa uh, states, that Putin's guiding principle is that he's an anti-revolutionary. Um, he's a figure that values stability above all else, and if he is looking at this and seeing well we get all of the things essentially that we asked for the americans get to claim that they won even though that they even though they didn't and the only thing we have to do is essentially not go west of the dnieper river anymore then it's a win and he'll also be thinking of the long period where the uh, russian state was formed he'll be thinking that well, we might not get all of Ukraine now, but is that this Ukrainian statelet that's going to be formed is going to be very unstable, and in the end we might get Kiev and the rest of Ukraine in a few years' time. So that's what he may be thinking. And can he sell that to the Russian population? I would think he probably can, if they actually gain everything east of the Dnieper River. Um, He probably could sell that. And say, well, look, we have, we had to make a deal. we didn't like doing it, but this is we brought all these all these millions of people uh, home to Russia. The operation has been a success. Who knows how that could work out? Um, it would be within the character of the man, I would say, that he looks at the forces getting stirred up within Russia in terms of the uh, anti-western sentiments the anti-american sentiment the anti-nato sentiment the various different forms of russian nationalism that are getting stronger Uh, a man like putin may well look at that and think well some of this i can use some of this i don't like the look of because again like he's not he's not a raving lunatic like he's not some um madman from the steppe with a long beard and a huge cross of the Orthodox Church He wants to step forward and dramatically reclaim all of the lands of the Russian Empire. Um, but he's always a man who's been prepared to make a deal. He is, after all, the leader of a capitalist state. And in the end, the capitalist class in Russia were forced into this conflict against their, against their will. They didn't want it. They had to grudgingly accept that they were in this. And... So, if the Americans offer them a deal which gives them large amounts of what was, or more than they would have got in April, maybe pressure from the Russian capitalist class coming in uh, into the Russian government, saying, "Well, why not take it? We're getting more than we asked for, and more than we would have got back in April. Why carry on?" It, those are the those are the pressures that exist within a capitalist government, they exist within any government, but particularly one where many of the Russian capitalists would like to go back to trading with Germany in particular and would like to go back uh, get back around the sanctions if um, the Americans are making offers to, should we say, quietly drop some of these sanctions. These are the kind of offers that a capitalist state, which is what Russia is, remember, would be interested in taking. And, of course, the Americans will use their propaganda machine to sell it as a great victory for them And the Russians will use their propaganda machine to sell it as a great victory. I think that Putin would have more justification if the deal is indeed uh, what Escobar and others are saying it is. They would say it's a victory. And in the end, this was probably going to be something which always was resolved via a negotiation. And at this stage, this is a potentially better arrangement than the Russians would have got otherwise. So... Putin can sell it. The Russian capitalist class may well want out, and if the Americans have offered an out around certain sanctions, they may be interested. Bear in mind that we heard earlier this week that Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan and others were told by the White House, don't get out of Russian energy and don't get out of Russian agricultural markets. Keep yourselves in there. Keep a foothold. This may be part of it as well. Um, the Americans realising that they couldn't just cut Russian agriculture and energy out of the market and that their policy had failed and they needed a way out. So, a deal in the end that leaves um, the more radical elements in Russia unsatisfied but delivers more than what the Russian capitalist class were told that they were going to get back in March, that's something that could easily be accepted by the Russian ruling class. And if Putin achieves everything that he set out and more back in back in February, then it could well be a deal that they could take. So this is going to cause some political problems. Pulling out of Kherson and and until the until the the details of this deal or whatever become clear is going to cause some political problems for Putin. But he can probably think he probably thinks he can absorb those. So let's see. Um, it could well be that Zelensky decides, fuck it, I'm, <laughs> I'm not having it, we're going for another attack tomorrow. But again, if Zelensky has been told by the White House, you take this or and there's nothing else on the table, you take this and you don't get, or you do not get anything else, not from us, not from the Europeans. However, if you do take it, you get to fuck off and swan off back to a villa somewhere and never have to deal with any of this again, And also, uh, whoever takes over from you gets essentially paid to manage this agricultural colony on the east of Europe. Again, we will have to see. But the Americans have always been able, at any point, to tell the Kiev clowns, this is it, this is over, because they can't fight without them. The Americans turn off the satellite coverage, they can't target. The Americans cut off the arm supplies, they'll run out in a couple of weeks the europeans stop paying and the americans stop paying for the functioning of the kiev government they can't do anything and if the russians kept up that level of pressure on the energy system and then of course the kiev regime starts threatening to unleash waves of refugees on europe that would be something that the western europeans and the poles remember the mad dogs of warsaw don't actually like ukrainians very much they even they might think that that's too much so it may well be that the Russian pressure in recent weeks and the likelihood of an all-out of some kind of all-out offensive, either a slow-rolling one or a quicker one, has persuaded, along with the coming recession and the disturbances in Europe and the potential for state collapse in Ukraine, has persuaded the White House that you know what this is enough. We've had enough of this now. Let's get out. And let's let's claim victory and run away, and just prop up this Ukrainian state and then hope that um, we, the Democrats, can. Hang on to the White House after a slightly better performance in the midterms than they than they looked like they were going to get at one stage. So we'll be updating on this tomorrow. I doubtless there will be a lot said and written about this in the coming weeks. Um, so I'll be having to update on this every day as per normal. But turning, of course, to the midterms, which I mentioned there just a moment ago. Latest results coming in and the bear in mind the Byzantine system that many US states use to count their to count their votes may, means that apparently they won't be ready for weeks. But initial results that have come in, and it looks like what has happened is that the Republicans have gained a small majority in the House of Representatives. Uh, they so far have gained six seats, and the, the Democrats have lost eight, according to the very latest results. So it looks like the Republicans take over the House. The Senate looks like it's going to be very, very close. It could be a dead heat almost. So far, as of recording this, at 11.30 on the morning of the 10th of November, the Republicans are on 48 and the Democrats are on 46. So either a split in in the Senate and a slight Republican majority in the House of Representatives. Either way... It's not the complete and utter disaster that the Democrats feared that they would get. It's not the red wave, it's a red trickle. Um, just like in 2018, there was supposed to be a blue wave and the Democrats ended up with a slight majority in the House and a split Senate. So it's essentially a reverse of four years ago. And what's clear is, of course, that the bulk of the American working class probably looks at, or certainly looks at, both parties and think, well, thinks, well, neither of these speak for me, which is, of course, the obvious truth. And the swing vote um, that is usually operated in these systems, not just America, but Britain too, is, what well, as always, the bits of the petty bourgeoisie in certain states that swing between Democrat and Republican. The interesting thing out of this isn't the results. The results are as they were several years uh, to the last few few years. It's a basic like tiny swing each time between Democrat and Republican deadlock, largely, and then the the leaders of the Senate, in particular Schumer and McConnell, then hash out bargains behind closed doors. I give you this funding bill. You give me these judges appointed, and we'll call it quits. This is how the dirty business of American bourgeois politics operate. And everybody agrees to uh, look the other way as uh, various pork barrel projects get put through. Everybody votes for the latest vastly inflated military budget as long as their chosen boondoggles get attached to it. And nobody asks what the hell the CIA's budget is this year or what they're doing with that death ray. So this is the, as I said, this is the dirty business of American bourgeois politics. The interesting thing coming out of it, beyond the results, is the narratives that are being crafted now. The narrative being crafted inside the United States is that that DeSantis won and the loss is Trump's. And the the pointing is going on amongst not just the Democrats, but the the, the bits of the American uh, bourgeois right-wingers who never liked Trump, though some of them might have gone along with him, they have decided that now is the time to try and bury him. Uh, once and for all, because they don't want him back. And again, I'll go into a little bit more detail about what Trump is and what Trump isn't, but the main reason the, the bourgeoisie does not want Trump back is because nothing, it's not because of anything he did, it's because they need this figure of stability at the top. Now Biden is half dead, or maybe all dead, played by an actor, CGI, deepfake, who knows. But He doesn't do anything that is out of the ordinary, too much. I mean, he's given lines to say which, of course, trigger the Republicans and people on the right who spend days fulminating about it, but he's just basically there as a placeholder. And now, clearly, there is a move amongst the American ruling class to anoint DeSantis as their guy. Now, DeSantis is a more dangerous figure for the American working class in many ways, because he is a more capable reactionary. Trump isn't very capable of doing anything. DeSantis is an establishment figure. Even though he clashed with them over COVID laws, we're seeing now just how little that really mattered to the US ruling class. He knows how to run a state government efficiently from the capitalist point of view. He can lean into certain populist elements like the anti-woke stuff, um, the... Uh, anti-Fauci stuff. He can lean into that, but that doesn't really matter uh, to the American ruling class. That's a good thing to throw out there as uh, the old phrase they used to use in Britain in the Blairite era would be red meat for the base. Meaningless crap to keep the, uh, keep the crowds entertained whilst the serious business of government gets done behind closed doors. And DeSantis is the kind of guy who can do that. And the, he's a much more capable and assured figure on the national stage than Trump would be or that some of these other rivals in the Republican Party would be. And so clearly there's now a move in the Republicans to anoint DeSantis as the guy, which is why Trump's insulting him and doing petty tweets about him on his truth social network. Of course, it's worth emphasizing here and just revisiting what the the Trump presidency meant and what it didn't mean. Now, I've I've talked about this quite a lot over the course of the last 18 months. It's just worth revisiting this again, though. Because Trump won back in 2016, and I think that this this victory has been overstated so many times by both his allies and his enemies. Now, Trump won on a minority of the vote. He won basically because Hillary Clinton ran an incredibly incompetent and useless campaign and is a widely loathed figure for very good reasons. And Trump, realising this, uh, managed to lean into certain things that generated a lot of enthusiasm or certainly a deal of enthusiasm. Worth, though, going right the way back to 2015 when Trump started his bid for the White House. Now, he started it uh, coming down the, the golden escalator in Trump Tower. and he started it by essentially taking all the talking points that the Republican Party had been churning over for the last eight years during the Obama presidency and just going a little bit further to put himself out there and to distinguish himself as a brand. So what did he do? He came out with the idea of the wall and the wall was the the big thing that uh, he used to differentiate himself from like the likes of like Cruz Rubio, Jeb Bush who were meant to be the front runners that the GOP establishment had anointed to be their guys now maybe not Cruz they didn't particularly like Cruz nobody does Uh, but Rubio yes and certainly Jeb Bush and these were the guys who were meant to be the nominees potential nominees uh, for the Republican Party so and remember they were talking about Scott Walker the former governor of Wisconsin as well uh, who was meant to be something Uh, turns out to be nothing but Trump needed to distinguish himself. So he distinguishes himself, first of all, by going far further on immigration, or at least verbally going further. By saying we're going to build a wall, we're going to kick the illegals out. He, he, but he wasn't that much further down the road in terms of rhetoric. He was just better at it than Cruz, than Rubio, and all the, even than Jeb Bush, um, who Trump and Rubio and Cruz all attacked back then for being soft on immigration, etc. So Trump just went that little bit further. And then when it came to, like, foreign policy, yes, he said that the war in Syria was useless and should be ended, that the war in Libya was a mistake, um, which just did distinguish him from the others who didn't raise any questions about it at all. And and then as the time went on and he brought in Bannon, uh, they did start talking about economic protectionism, though, as I've said repeatedly before, that didn't really amount to very much in Trump's time, uh, though they did get, like, one factory open up in Wisconsin from Foxconn. And they had to throw a lot of subsidies at Foxconn to get that. But what um, did start to happen was, of course, that more talk of protectionism started to come in to the US political system. And this is not Trump's invention. This is part of the unfolding process that has been under underway since at least 2008, which is that the American uh, politicians faced with the crisis of American capitalism that really uh, kicked into a new level in the the collapse of 2008, needed to do something to um, essentially secure their own position and stop the relentless rise of the Chinese economy. Again, there is broad continuity here between Obama, who wanted to use the Trans-Pacific Partnership to funnel capital from America away from China to other regions and in, in countries in the Asia Pacific region that were more in line with America. And so this was something that he was, this was his idea of how they were going to stop or stifle the rising Chinese economy. Trump kiboshed that and then said that his thing was going to be a, a reshoring of American uh, industry. Not really that successful. But then, of course, Biden doesn't really change policy from Trump. He actually goes a little bit further, which is that he kept. Trump's steel tariffs, for instance, because, of course, steel being a key strategic asset, a key strategic resource um, that any uh, serious country needs to get control over. So the Biden administration kept the steel tariffs. And they also um, looked to reshore production when it came to uh, microprocessors, uh, which the, uh, the American experts... Identified as being absolutely crucial to the rise of China. Now, this is another silly thing that the American political class gets obsessed with the idea that the rise of China was only because or was fueled by access to American technology, and therefore, if they withdrew access to like uh, microprocessor technology, that this would cripple China's um, economy. Not true. They are um, completely wrong about that. First of all, the Chinese have had decades to analyze these things that they've been putting into products that are uh, built in China. And the American advantage over the Chinese, as identified by the American strategist, remains one that is concentrated in certain aspects of uh, computer technology. Like, for instance, I think the most efficient supercomputers in the world are, I think, mostly still American, though the Chinese are catching up with that. So, the idea was that they now can slow down China's growth by withdrawing access to specific bits of technology. Of course, the Chinese have a thousand workarounds. They could have reverse engineered all of this stuff and be ready to produce it themselves. They can get them through third countries. Again, it's a silly thing that the American politicians became obsessed with and threw money at to try and make into a, a solution. But the point is that Trump's reshoring policy became Biden's reshoring policy. And this is just the, this is how capitalism is going through a phase whereby a period of what is referred to now as globalization goes uh, for a, a certain generation and this has happened before back in the period where the British Empire was dominant towards the end of the 19th century. they went through a period of globe starting to globalize their production um, you've heard me talk before about the fact that the deindustrialization of Britain begins actually, all the way back in the 1870s, where they started putting more and more uh, production outside of Britain and into the empire countries. Of course, that period of uh, British-led globalisation, the British um, rules-based international order, comes to a shuddering collapse with the um, horrors of World War One and the inter-imperialist war that took place then. Then you get a period of where they have profound change where the leadership moves slowly through the 20s and 30s from Europe to uh, the United States. You get the, of course, the increased protectionist period of the 30s, then you get World War II. Uh, but then after that, when you get the Americans spreading out their interests all the way across the capitalist world, then this receives a new boost after the implosion of the socialist bloc, thanks to the counter-revolution that took place there, the Americans, of course, got an unprecedented 30-year-long extension to their globalization efforts. And now this is all definitively coming to an end. And so it makes complete sense that the American administrations, the American uh, political class, would go from, in the early George W. Bush period, still pushing the doctrine of free trade. Uh, Bush himself used to say, uh, that this was a great thing in all the speeches that he gave before, around about 05, 06, kept talking about how great it was that they were doing all, the, all these free trade deals. This was part of what was making America great. The rhetoric starts to change slightly with Obama, then definitely with Trump, and now, of course, with Biden and the Democrats. They're all talking about reshoring. They're all talking about rivalries. They're all talking about the world splitting up into blocks, which is, of course why the Americans are desperate to actually focus on getting control of their own, what they regard as their hemisphere again, including getting control of Haiti for its hyper-exploitable labor, and other countries too. We can expect renewed attempts at regime change in other areas when they've got this Russia situation under control, which is another reason why the Americans might be thinking, well, too much of our attention is being sunk into this Ukraine war, we've got problems right here inside the US itself and also inside the hemisphere they feel they need to dominate to secure at least a reliable block inside the Americas that is totally dominated by US capital and the other countries don't get a look into that. So all of this is to say that Trump wasn't the radical bolt from the blue that he appeared to be. Trump was essentially, in many ways, a rhetorical extension of what Many of the Republicans were talking about already when it came to immigration. Uh, He went further with it or tried to go further with it. Now, the thing that did distinguish him was he was prepared to openly attack the intelligence services, which, of course, he continued to do, which, of course, did gain him a certain amount of popularity. And uh, he got to portray himself as more of an outsider. But the point I'm making here is that Trump other than in rhetorical terms and in terms of some of his behavior, which freaked out the political establishment, which is why they can't have him back. Really, in policy terms, it's, it's a lot of continuity between him and Obama and between him and Biden, because the needs of American capital make them manifest themselves, no matter who is in the White House. Uh, now, of course, American capital would prefer a DeSantis, who's a lot more of a credible figure, they will prefer somebody who isn't drooling on stage or who doesn't appear to be drunk most of the time. But they are now preparing for a period of uh, retrenchment inside the United States itself. So we can expect them to require stronger political leadership, which is why I, I said a while ago that DeSantis would be the figure they looked at to usher in a period where they carry out more aggressive attacks on the American working class. And that is certainly something which is coming down the pipeline. You can feel it gathering pace if you look at American political life. Um, All this shit that the Democrats have been talking about being on the side of unions, etc. All of that will be dumped. All of the petty bourgeois clowns and propagandists in the, uh, the bourgeois media will now turn definitively, once the Republicans have themselves a credible leader, who isn't Trump, Um, they will all turn to say, right, now we need to reinvigorate the economy of the United States and sacrifices must be made. Of course, whether they can carry out this act of um, horrific class war that many of them now have in mind is another matter entirely. But this is what will be on the cards. What will be on the cards is that they will look to seek to impose discipline on American labor um, and do so in a way that, of course, forces up uh, profitability and this is the pressure that is on the american capitalist class all the talk of um globalization and free trade kind of goes out the window now the drive will be to restore profitability inside the u.s itself to uh, uh, re-secure their home base so to speak so this is what they require from their political system biden maybe can't do it so it's just a stopgap figure Desantis. May be their choice to do so. And so the American ruling class will probably want, as I said earlier, an end to this war in Ukraine, or at least a freeze to it, followed by a focus on asserting themselves inside the borders of the United States and, of course, continuing their attempts to stop the rise of China. And this will be subject to many more podcasts to come, I suspect, because we are only at the beginning of what will be the emergence of a much more bitter and intense class war inside the United States itself which is what I think the US ruling class is gearing up for so thank you for listening I'll be back again with more on this tomorrow certainly the Ukraine Russia NATO US story and the potential peace deal and carving up of Ukraine is something to keep an eye on whether this thing turns out to be any more than an illusion only time will tell so until tomorrow thank you for listening and now here's some music.
1: This so loved down and disgusted Can't help but wonder It's happening into my companion Are they lost or are they found Have they counted the cost it take to bring down All the earthly principles they're gonna have to abandon And there's a slow, slow train coming I'll be round die down here be just another accident statistic around like kings, wearing fancy jewels and those rings, deciding America's future from Amsterdam.